welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today for our Postmodern Conservative series, in our fifth interview in memory of my mentor, the late Peter Lawler, I am joined by one of his oldest friends and closest intellectual compeers, Daniel Mahoney. Sir, thank you very much for joining me. Please introduce yourself for our audience since it's your first time on the podcast. Yes, my name is Daniel Mahoney. I publish everything under the name Daniel J. Mahoney. My official name is Daniel J. Mahoney III, since my grandfather and father had the same names. But it sounds vaguely royalist when you use the third of the United States of America, so we got rid of that one. I'm a uh, political scientist, political theorist. I publish something like 12 or 13 books, including edited collections and several hundred articles and reviews. So I'm uh, nearly as productive as Peter. You know, Peter was uh, as productive as any human being who ever lived. His vita had a selection of his writings since he didn't know where half of them appeared or couldn't remember their dates of publication. Plus, it would have been too long even for a very large CV. I have taught since 1986 at Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. That's a Catholic college. All Catholic colleges are sort of Catholic. Ours might be a little more Catholic than, let's say, the Jesuit colleges and universities, but most of the faculty are either indifferent to or openly hostile to Catholicism and classical Western humanism. That's the state of the modern university. It's been highly ideologized, if you haven't noticed. I hold the Augustan Chair in Distinguished Scholarship. I've written extensively on French political thought, and that includes people like Montesquieu, Tocqueville, Constant. I published a book on not only the statesmanship, but the political reflection of Charles de Gaulle. One of the hats I wear is a serious philosophical engagement with and study of statesmanship. I'm writing a book right now called The Statesman is Thinker, 10 Portraits of Greatness, Moderation, and Courage, arguing that the cardinal virtues of antiquity are a better guide for understanding the nature of statecraft than our sort of hobbist, Machiavellian reduction of the human world to power. Although, of course, power is an essential element of politics, but it's always a means, and when it becomes an end, it's purely nihilistic. So again, on the French, I'm uh, one of the specialists world of Raymond Aron, Raymond Aron, as we say in English, who was a great French conservative-minded liberal, an opponent of totalitarianism, a man who was extremely lucid at a time when so many French intellectuals and European intellectuals had succumbed either to the totalitarian temptation or later on to a kind of juvenile antinomianism that we see in the spirit of uh, May 68 in France. Rome was the great critic of the spirit of May 68, standing nearly alone in the intellectual world attacking the strange mixture, by the way, of absolute indulgence toward foreign tyranny admiration for tropical totalitarianism in Cuba, for Mao and his terror and cultural revolution. Same time these people wanted, well, the motto of 68 was, it is forbidden to forbid. So they managed to combine, and Arone was wonderful at pointing this out, a radical indulgence toward totalitarianism with a kind of radical moral antinomianism, where any restrictions on freedom or the recognition of any ends and purposes guiding human freedom were seen as oppressive 
I've written a lot on Pierre Manon, the, was a student of Aron's, but very much his own man, a great admirer of Aron's, but uh, he's a Catholic. He was influenced certainly in the early years of his work by Leo Strauss, although he's also something of a critic of a kind of Straussianism that overemphasizes the trans-political, trans-moral philosopher. That's another story. I've written extensively on totalitarianism, especially Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I'm the co-editor of the Solzhenitsyn Reader, New and Essential Writings, 1947 to 2005. I published a book called Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from Ideology, which has appeared in many languages, including French and Romanian. My second book, The Other Solzhenitsyn, which is an effort to delineate the depth of Solzhenitsyn's thought against his culture despiser, that's appeared in several languages, including French and Romanian. I've got my Romanian editions over there. Just thought I would bring that to your attention. My uh, last two books, well, besides the other Solzhenitsyn, Telling the Truth About a Misunderstood Writer and Thinker, was a book called The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order. And it has one of the longest titles in the history of books, but the subtitle is Defending Democracy Against Its Modern Enemies and Its Immoderate Friends. That's something Peter and I had in common. We were both Tocquevillians who thought that the threat to the well-being of democracy came as much from democracy's immoderate friends as it came from its explicit or open enemies. And so much of the cultural, political, intellectual left today thinks the solution to the problems of democracy is more democracy. Of course, paradoxically, they don't really believe in self-government or the will of the people. Their idea of democracy is abstract, it's tied to doctrinary egalitarianism, it's tied to what Roger Scruton, who I also wrote very extensively on, Peter wrote some on him too, he was a dear friend of ours, Roger Scruton so aptly called the culture of repudiation, this entire cultural project to tear down the civic and civilizational patrimony of European and American men and women. My last book is entitled The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Corrupts Christianity. If I had a longer subtitle, I could have said, and free and decent politics. My argument is that much of what goes by the name of Christianity today is really radically transformed by humanitarianism, the religion of humanity project of this worldly amelioration tied to doctrinaire and even fanatical egalitarianism, losing sight of the transcendent and the soul, showing a remarkable and pernicious indulgence toward political movements and ideology that are openly and aggressively anti-Christian. This January, I had a piece in National Review called The Wayward Shepherd, where I pointed out that Pope Francis, I have nothing against the man personally, but he seems to me more than half humanitarian. He seems most interested in promoting a vision of Christianity that has more to do with predictably progressive positions on third worldism, climate change, you know, a certain indulgence toward revolutionary despotisms, no matter how petty and stupid, from Maduro and Venezuela to, you know, he landed in Havana in 2015, and Castro was so sick to greet him, but he said, I have profound admiration for Fidel. Well, you know, Fidel had been murdering his co-religionists for 50 years, outlawed Christmas for 48. I'm not sure the Holy Roman Pontiff should have profound admiration for Fidel, but anyway, 
all of those give you, you can see when I enunciate some of those themes and interests that there is an overlap with Peter, but Peter and I also had a division of labor. I was also, I'm interested in cultural matters too, but Peter was an infinitely more of a pop culture guy than I was. <laughs> and uh, Peter was certainly interested in politics and I think was a good political commentator and observer. But I think from the end of the Cold War to 9-11, he drifted almost exclusively toward political philosophy on the one hand and cultural criticism on the other. After 9-11, the politics came back. And I think the things that really moved his soul were, you know, a defense of the relational person and a recovery of what he called moral realism. He'd get there in a kind of convoluted way, kind of an existentialist way through Pascal, but he called himself a Thomist. And I think he meant by that, not that he probably spent a lot of time with St. Thomas, but via Walker Percy, he had really come to recover the idea that there is a structure of reality and that that structure of reality has much to do with the distinctiveness of the human person. The human person is relational, but the human person is also the being with speech and reason. You know, and Percy got at that through a conservative version, Pierce and semiotics. Peter knew that from classical philosophy and from Thomism, but Percy brought a kind of existentialism, at least the dislocation of modern man. That was the starting point. But that wasn't the ending point. The ending point was a recovery of a essentially classical Christian anthropology, an understanding of human beings as purposive, relational, social beings. Peter was very much committed to the defense of America. He would not have been with the Integralists. Peter knew that the American founding was influenced and informed by the Enlightenment, by Locke, but it wasn't just that. He loved to quote Walker Percy saying the American founding drew on a mishmash anthropology. But he also thought, following John Courtney Murray's We Hold These Truths, that classical Christianity could better articulate the moral and philosophical achievement of the founding. In other words, if we really want to defend liberty under law, if we really want to defend moral and civic responsibility, not Lockeanism, not radical individualism, not quasi-moral relativism, but a more traditional anthropology, a more traditional moral realism, provided the foundation for giving modern liberty the sense of purpose. You know, we're free, but what do we do with our freedom? That's the vertigo that a distinctively modern theory leaves us with. And Peter saw that Christian personalism and Christian realism could make better sense of what Americans wanted to make of America than some of the thinkers who had, for better or worse, influence on the American founding. So this is why he turned to Percy and Tocqueville and John Courtney Murray and, of course, Orestes Brownson, who he helped recover in recent times. So uh, that was a very important project for Peter, to defend the dignity of America. He didn't claim America was perfect, but he also refused to leave Christians without a country which is what the fanatics and integralists do. They leave us, they want to say the church is the only true country. Well, no. So uh, Peter was a patriot, but he was a patriot who knew the problems and he knew that we needed in a way to theorize the achievement of America better than the founders had done. That's why he always quoted the American bishops from 1881. America had built better than it knew. 
you know, that it was a good country, and now it's less of a morally estimable country because we've moved away from those truths at the heart of our civic enterprise. But Peter thought, broadly speaking, that Orthodox Christianity could give a fuller account of responsible individuality than liberal individualism could, even though we ought to value the achievements of a liberal world. So like me, he was a liberal conservative. He wanted to conjugate the mix of conservatism and liberalism that allowed for a decent political order in the modern world. Yeah, that's a very good account. And I think you're leading on to one of Peter's favorite phrases, especially for our times, that the task for us is to use libertarian means to non-libertarian ends. We know at some level what makes us human, but articulating it is peculiar, indirect, difficult, and we often find ourselves using the tools of modern individualism, which is liberal and libertarian, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we are aiming to get at something more natural and primary than the constructions and the abstractions that are so typical, even of our everyday experience, to say nothing of modern thought more broadly. But you knew Peter for a very long time indeed. Tell me, how did you meet him, and how did you two become friends, and how did your friendship evolve through the years, given Uh, that, as you said, you have all these ideas in common, you share all these intellectual affinities and concerns? Well, Peter and I were extremely close friends for, oh, you know, 30 years. I first came across Peter in a journal called Teaching Political Science, which is now Perspectives on Political Science, and he would go on to edit And I'm now the editor-in-chief of that. I took over after Peter died. Peter was writing just absolutely terrific articles about Tocqueville and the metaphysical foundations of freedom. He had an article in a review of politics about Madison on conscience and religion. He had a very unique take on um, Leo Strauss. It was very clear that Peter was a Catholic, that he was not an Orthodox Straussian, but nonetheless, he thought Strauss had recovered something important. He had recovered against modern historicism or nihilism the possibility of speaking about reason and revelation in a fresh way, in a way that I think you put it very nicely, that got us back closer to a natural order of things. So I saw that in Peter, and I was really saw this tremendous energy and intelligence. I saw a Catholic political philosopher who was unique, not predictable, not somebody who was just repeating stale, sclerotic, Thomistic bromides. He and I, in 1988, organized a conference at the American Political Science Association on Tocqueville, called Was Tocqueville a Philosopher? And we were trying to figure out the mix of practical wisdom and theoretical vision that informed Tocqueville. And you could already see Peter was moving away from this Platonic Straussian view that the philosopher sort of above the fray was the highest human type. And he admired somebody like Tocqueville who was deeply theoretical in a way. You know, he thought deeply about the soul and democracy's effect on the soul. And it was hard to figure out what precisely his relationship to Christianity was. He was a friend of it, but perhaps with some serious doubts, but he was not a materialist. He defended the soul, not as, you know, a useful fiction for freedom, but as he hated philosophical or theoretical materialism, as well as practical materialism, because he thought it reduced human beings. And the great line, Peter loved this line too, where Tocqueville says, talk about intellectuals, people who make a living from reflection, from ratification. 
Why do they take such delight in proving they're nothing but beasts? Think today with neuroscience and various forms of sociobiological determinism, most intellectuals delight in denying free will, denying moral agency, denying that human beings are anything other than a collection of predetermined neurons. Really goes back to Hobbes, man is nothing but matter in motion. A thoroughgoing materialism cannot say anything about personhood, consciousness, the soul, freedom. And without that phenomenological or metaphysical starting point, everything we suggest about human responsibility or civic deliberation is just a myth. So Peter was extremely alert to those kinds of things, and he got me more and more interested in those questions. So we had a very strong initial common interest in Tocqueville. I think I, in the 90s, really introduced him to Manant's work. He admired it a great deal. He was less influenced by it than I was. But clearly, he was a great admirer of Manant, thought he was the most serious and penetrating contemporary European political philosopher. And of course, Pierre, like Peter and I, was trying to conjugate various goods, religion, political freedom, reason, self-government, the life of the soul. Peter was funny. I, uh, I had interest in Solzhenitsyn going back to the 70s, and I thought the depth of Solzhenitsyn's insights into the soul, the grounds of his opposition to totalitarianism, his gifts as a writer, the remarkable achievement that was the Gulag Archipelago. I mean, to me, the specialists, you know, they all they could talk about is Slavophiles and Westernizers. Again, those abstractions that illuminate nothing. And I was very happy when my book started coming out in Solzhenitsyn that the Solzhenitsyn family responded so receptively. They saw, you know, finally someone who was attentively engaging, you know, some of the depths of Solzhenitsyn's reflection. So Peter was interested in Solzhenitsyn too. He would sort of, I don't want to say would cherry pick, he had his own, he was less interested in Solzhenitsyn's engagement with totalitarianism and more with his critique of the spiritual aridity of the West. Peter was very interested in Václav Havel for a while. His philosophical essays from the dissident period, Power of the Powerless, Politics and Conscience, and some of the initial speeches he gave after the fall of communism. You know, Havel was trying to recover what he called the life world, a world where good and evil, personal responsibility were real. He was trying to recover not subjectivism, but subjectivity, the person, against modern reductionism. Peter loved all that. But I don't know, about 1995, there were a couple of speeches by Havel where he brought in the Gaia hypothesis and all this kind of new agey stuff. And Peter almost lost interest in him overnight. It was like Havel had disappointed him. So. But Peter wrote some, maybe seven, eight, nine pieces on Havel from the late 80s to the mid-90s, which were really good. And the closest he ever came to a real engagement with the totalitarian phenomena. That was much more my thing than his. But we always had a kind of division of labor. And by that time, I was a contributing editor at PPS. We did many symposia together on Tocqueville, on Havel, on Oral Kolnai, a Hungarian Catholic uh, phenomenologist, moral political philosopher, conservative. And I was always interested in the things he was doing. He was always interested in the things I was doing. We participated in hundreds of conferences together at Barry, here, the famous ISI summer seminar. I did that for 20 years and I dropped out about five years ago because I could not party into the way 
you know, part of it was you thought hard, you worked hard, you gave presentations, you talked to the students, and then you drank till about two in the morning. And I would come back with my liver damaged and feeling, uh, I remember one year in 1997 in Williamsburg, Virginia, Peter would lead us over to Paul's Dairy. It was a bar with a strange name every night. And by the 11th and 12th night, we were practically zombies. And Peter would say, stay the course. So this was, uh, this was uh, in the early days. And then there were four or five years in Oxford and Cambridge. And Peter barely slept. The beds at Oriel College were terrible. He stayed up talking to the night man at Oriel College and calling his wife. But he would give these brilliant talks on Shakespeare, you know. And they had all these Shakespeare, one year at least on Shakespeare, they had all these famous Shakespeare scholars who were so, you know, the, it was just so scholarly and sort of beside the point. And Peter would go, right. I remember a talk he gave on The Tempest. It went right to the heart of things. But he had so many jokes in there. That was Peter, you know. He also had a gift, especially with these conservative-minded students. He would sometimes sympathetically, but provisionally, present an argument that was not his own, but he wanted them to take it seriously. So I remember a couple occasions where the less dialectical, not Marxist dialectics, but platonic dialectics, they would think Peter was endorsing what he was trying to refute because they weren't used to the mix of humor sort of pushing a point before doing it in, you know? But for many, many years, he was the leader. He was the one who, there were lots of brilliant people. Scruton came a couple of years. I remember he was so impeccably dressed, but Peter noticed on the third day, still wearing the same outfit from the first two days. Very English. So we had a great crew. Mark Henry would organize all that. And Mark, uh, you know, was trying to turn everyone into an Anglophile. Peter had no interest in, uh, I mean, of course, he respected Shakespeare and Burke, but he was not interested in, you know, being an English dandy. But all these young guys, Mark, Mark was, I finally had to say one year, Mark was going on about Newman and the Tractarians and Oxford. And I said, you know, England is a country where 32% of people say they believe in God, and half of them confuse God with electricity or some force. So this England, you know, of Catholic converts and Newman is a world that's pretty far gone. But it's not nostalgia, and there's nothing better than reminding ourselves of the greatness of Cardinal Newman. But it was a strange place. I mean, it, there was an eccentricity about those conferences and the kids. You know, they're 19, 20, 21, 22, but they sometimes had very firm theoretical positions. And the wars of religion would be restarted sometimes in a very amiably way. After a few beers, the Catholics and Protestants would be debating on justification. And, you know, sometimes Peter and I would say, why don't you lighten up a little bit? You know, it's 12 o'clock, have another beer. And, you know, the problem of justification by faith alone will still be with us tomorrow. So those were fun, fun years. Peter was always organizing conferences, including his Stuck With Virtue series from the Templeton Foundation. So I participated in several of those. Peter edited so many book volumes. I mean, his, the edited books were a little eccentric. He would throw that in the kitchen sink in. There were always great essays in there, but Peter was not one of these people who thought everything should be streamlined. And even his own collections of essays sometimes you know, like his last book on higher education with St. Augustine's, um, I have it right here, American Heresies in Higher Education. The first eight or nine essays are a 
beautiful discussion of the nature of liberal education, the danger of democratic access, the growing efforts to denude higher education of content. And it really would have been a nice little book. But then Peter had this idea that we recovered the Chestertonian idea of heresy. You know, that heresies are truths gone awry. And that's how he looked at Lockeanism and Darwinism. It was a very fruitful idea. But then he had, in the second part of the book, essays on moderately socially conservative Darwinism, Southern discomfort, Tocqueville in keeping our countercultural churches, Atticus Finch's American Stoicism. Great essays. But that was Peter. Peter saw a unity in there. There was a unity in there. But it was something that an editor or perhaps, you know, somebody who's used to more streamlined, disciplined presentation of thought would say, well, this doesn't really belong in this volume. But that wasn't Peter. Peter's books were delightful engagements with Lollarian themes. And it was Peter who united those themes through this comprehensive reflection on politics, the soul, philosophy, Christianity, culture. And uh, he wasn't a snob. He did not think, you know, it wasn't, my, I, I contributed 15 or 16 essays to the New Criteria, one of my favorite magazines, and God bless them, but they're a high culture magazine. And there's a wonderful place for that, defending the integrity of high culture against sort of demonic threats. But Peter saw a lot of wisdom in popular culture. He'd elevated, you know, he'd understand it in light of higher things. That was his thing more than my thing, but I was with him the whole way. I enjoyed, like I said, we had a kind of division of labor and we were very close intellectually, you know, and he introduced me. I I read Walker Percy's novels, but I had never really thought of the semiotic side or the return to classical realism. Of course, I knew he was a Catholic. So we, we taught each other a lot and we had a division of labor and we had some separate interests, but just a tremendous amount of overlap and just... You know, every year we went to four or five, six conferences together. We hung out for four or five days at the American Political Science Association. Mark Henry would be there. Paul Seat would be there. Patrick Deneen would sometimes be there. So we had our little army. We had great fun. We had enough heterogeneity and pluralism that we didn't all think and talk alike. We had, in fact, some significant differences. And, you know, I don't agree with Deneen's frontal assault on liberalism. But, uh, you know, he's a very good friend because we understand the questions, you know. But Peter was a remarkable guy. He was just, there was a light in him, you know, uh, even the way he laughed. Do you ever see him do this where he, got, he thought something was funny? He was like a little kid, you know. He would, he would sort of have this reaction. You thought it was like a nine-year-old in front of you, you know. But there was a playfulness, a decency that was really rare. Just a wonderful human being. Yeah, there's a lot of spontaneity that shows up in Peter's behavior. It's the way he wrote, which was famously disordered and yet coherent. It went somewhere and in a decided way. And there's a connection between his interest in pop culture and on the other hand, his always looking around the world for intelligent thinkers who have something to say that turns out to be very important for Americans now because it reflects on the modern condition, because it reflects, therefore, also on America and on democracy. He had a very good nose for these things, for possible combinations, for the unusual application of ideas. That, I think, implies some kind of confidence that underlies this playfulness that you mentioned. 
partly that's a solid education and the practice of a teacher, and partly I think it has somehow to do with his being a faithful Catholic. He was not shaken by considerations. I suppose in a way you could say it's because a Catholic who is serious about being a Catholic in some way has seen it all. Things come and go. Ages come and go. Maybe... He always said it's things are getting better and worse at the same time. You know, he was neither a pessimist nor an optimist and certainly had a real Augustinian side to him and he knew about human depravity and sinfulness, but the final note was hopeful. It's a hope grounded in classical Christian wisdom. You know, he always said, we're stuck with virtue. And what he meant by that was the worst scenarios that either totalitarianism or soft despotism or, you know, the world evoked by Huxley and Brave New World would destroy our humanity. We'd be left with the last man or this automaton without freedom. And Peter was sensitive to those dangers, and he thought there was some truth to them. But he always thought that human nature would survive and come back, that you could mutilate humanity for a while. You could ignore the needs of the soul. But there really was, as I put it earlier in our discussion, a structure to reality. The soul had a permanent nature and needs and that, you know, conservatives make a mistake and Christians make a mistake if we think that, you know, this understanding of the modern project as culminating in a kind of radical transformation of human beings that could really ultimately succeed. Of course, my quarrel with them, you know, I ultimately can't succeed, but it can do an awful lot of damage to human beings along the way and destroy our common culture and body politic. But it was precisely because he had no utopian illusions that he had this hopefulness. And it's very close to Solzhenitsyn in a way. You know, this mix of good and evil in the human heart and the human soul is a ground for hope. That yes, we're capable of depravity. But except for a few rare souls who make a kind of demonic choice for radical evil, most of us individually and collectively have enough decency that the higher things, the things that illumine and inform and elevate our humanity are never going to be extinguished. So I think that mixture of moral realism with a certain confidence in God and confidence in the human condition very much informed everything Peter said and did. Yeah, I mean, my, my think about Peter. Peter was a genius, and I think, you know, you mentioned his writing. It's quirky. There's beautiful formulations, but he had quirks. Like, he would begin sentences, so, you know, and I would say, get rid of that, get rid of that, you know. He had his way. He had his idiom. It was somewhere between conversational journalism and academic writing, but sometimes it could be, it's, I always would say to Peter, you know, not everyone knows Fukuyama, not everyone knows Kojev, not everyone knows the Rousseau of the First Discourse. So he sometimes presupposed an amount of learning, even about contemporary figures that is pretty rare. But nonetheless, I think young people and his admirers in the Christian and conservative worlds I think if you spend a lot of time with Peter's work, you got yourself a liberal education that was both illuminating and fun, serious. Peter was thinking about the things that matter, but in an engaging, enjoyable, challenging way, you know, so different than the hundreds of thousands of time servers in the academic world. Yeah, that's right. He was both a friend and a teacher in the way he wrote. 
And it's not easy. Anyone who cares to try would find this to mix the notion that you have uncovered something important and that you would like to share with the notion that in a certain way, we all share in it already, at least potentially. This is, in fact, very difficult to do, which is why learned people tend to be so pedantic, among other things. Or on the other hand, why knowledgeable people tend to form guilds that exclude everybody else who are ignorant. These are things that I think we all know about and that are peculiar difficulty for a teacher. A teacher is always tied up in a friendship with his students and nevertheless has to face the fact that he is a knower and they are not. They are the potential knowers. That's not easy to deal with, but he did it very, very gracefully. And, you know, it seems like he made very many concessions to informality, to casualness, which would say, broadly speaking, is democracy people speaking, the first thing that comes into their mind or seeming to. Of course, if you're Peter, the the things that come into your mind are of uh, somewhat different order. As you say, they involve so much learning and there's this tendency to mention and connect all sorts of important events and important thinkers or actors that perhaps not everybody is aware of or not everybody can leap to mentally at the drop of a hat. But in another way, the informality testifies in a way to the character of thought. It is the case that thought starts with a soul. That is to say that you've reached a certain conclusion before you open your mouth. Something has dawned on you and it has dawned on you that it is so. It's informal in a certain way. It may even be rude. It certainly seems to be the way a teenage girl would talk. But it is not false to the experience of thinking about things and what it means to have an insight, or at least the beginning of an insight. Yeah, Peter's thought was always grounded, and his speech was always grounded in the concrete. And uh, you said it well before. He disliked abstractions. Abstractions were a ways of escaping or evading the world as it came to sight. So you could say, to use a fancy word, his approach was rather phenomenological. He wanted to understand human motives and aspirations, the wellsprings of the soul. And that was the starting point. He never began, as some Catholic thinkers do, with metaphysics. Metaphysics, you know, I think is an absolutely necessary enterprise, but it too can become abstract. And there's always a danger of thinking we know about some ultimate things. We know some things, but we know a lot less than we think we do, which is not to give in to positivism or anti-metaphysical liar where we pretend we can say nothing meaningful. But Peter's theoretical affirmations were really rooted in what Roger Scruton liked to call the life world. They were the experience of the soul. Peter was a friend of science. But like Scruton, he thought science had left out what Michael Polanyi called personal knowledge. Again, having nothing to do with moral subjectivism, but it was the stuff we know because we're reflective, relational human beings. And to say science can say nothing about that, or, you know, Scruton called it neural babble, but Peter had his own way of making fun. He used to polemicize against Darwinian Larry. You know Larry Arnhardt? Larry wants to reduce everything in the human world. You know, all the goods that conservatives and Christians uphold can be accounted for in an instrumental way by evolutionary psychology or Darwinism. And Peter thought, he liked Larry, and I think he enjoyed the sparring, but he, he thought Darwinian Larry just won't allow the phenomena to speak to him. A century ago, I don't know who invented it, but it was widely adopted, this nothing buttery. When all the great phenomena, the soul, the mind, free will, love, 
you know, when you think about it, if love is just, you know, the biological phenomena that occurs when one is moved by emotion, you're not having to explain what love is. You've reduced love to something it isn't. These biological things that can be measured are not unrelated to love. And love, of course, is a very manifold thing. Greeks and Latins had four words for it. We have one, alas, to our spiritual poverty. But when you reduce everything to this nothing buttery, you end up with nothing. You end up with a homogenized world. And I think Peter was extremely sensitive to the stuff we know. And, you know, we, was, we used to call him a Thanocentric political philosopher. He talked a lot about death, but not in a morbid way. He thought that one of the defining features of us human beings that made life serious and made it challenging and made it a moral enterprise was that we were self-conscious mortals. Pascal famously talks about the phenomenon of divertissement, of people doing anything to escape from the thought that they're going to die someday. But Peter thought self-conscious mortality was, in a way, it graced that it gave meaning to life and it pointed toward the encounter of the soul with something beyond itself. So he always started there. He never started with abstractions. In that sense, he wanted to enlarge the field of science. You know, he talks in a book like Modern and American Dignity, who we are as persons and what it means for our future. He wanted a science, a true science, that had room for the human person. I think Scruton wanted something similar, maybe using a more Kantian idiom, but they both thought, look, if the scientist can't, this is a Walker-Percy thing, if the scientist can't account for himself, the knower, then what is science? That was his obsession with these heresies. They have part of the truth, but they never tell you anything about the person who does the knowing or does the acting. Peter wanted to recover the person. He wanted to recover the soul. Again, not as a poetic metaphor, but as the foundational experience and being that is, for him, uh, the gift of personhood was the key to understanding the nature of reality. Yeah, there's a great continuity between his style of writing, his concerns, his activity primarily as a teacher, and at the same time, his public activity from the President's Council on Bioethics to simply publicizing his views in the press. And what runs through all this is indeed the need to get a new account of science and of its influence on our public life and private thoughts by reminding scientists that they don't know everything because they don't know why they do what they do. They cannot, as scientists, explain why they do what they do for a living. They cannot say why they are so pleased with what they're doing. They cannot say why anybody else should be. If materialism is true, then the activity of eros, you know, intellectual eros, of searching for truth, I mean, why should the results of science be taken seriously? A reduction of science cannot tell us anything about why truth, as opposed to falsehood, is a value for the scientific enterprise. But I, I think you're absolutely right. It's leaving the person out. But this is where, you know, Peter loved Pope Benedict, and he loved the recovery of logos. Again, all creative reason that had every place for scientific reason. But also, you know, Peter, like Benedict, insisted that theology and philosophy were both contributions to scientific understanding. Science is understanding things as they are. And understanding the human person as he is is not possible based on... Scruton liked to say, you know, look, if you take this reductive science literally, 
a smile is not an expression of one human person's reaction to another human person. A delight in a joke, the spark of romance, simply delight in nature. It just is a biological phenomenon where certain parts of the face move and the blood. That's not a smile. That's what accompanies a smile. And yet so much of our science is committed to explaining away that which every human being knows and experiences on a daily, hourly, minute basis, you know? So how did it happen that this, uh, I think Walker Percy called it the San Andreas fault in the modern mind, you know? <laughs> that our science couldn't tell us anything about ourselves. That aspect of Percy, that recovering an authentic science of overcoming this split in the modern soul, that never left Peter. That was what animated him, a recovery of capacious, humanizing reason. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can look at it in another way. What Peter and Walker Percy had in common was a sense of humor. Peter also liked Tom Wolfe, another Southerner who was more Stoic than Percy, of whom Peter thought was more Thomist rather than Stoic. But Tom Wolfe also summarized this neuroscience problem we have in a pithy phrase, I'm sorry, but your soldiers died. This new view simply denies that it is possible for us to know ourselves because there's not a self there to know in the first place. Of course, that doesn't account for why we would even try. If you have to tell people not to do it, it means that they're already trying to do something that apparently they shouldn't it, it, it be trying becomes, in the first place. It becomes a prescriptive enterprise and not a descriptive one. Exactly. It is a therapy rather than a science, really. Yes. And then it's important to find out whether the diagnosis that leads to this therapy is itself right. And there are certain things about it that are very, very shaky, starting with the fact that we have to ask ourselves why we even do what we do. The writers and the style that Peter preferred was some things are just funny. As you alluded to the smile, these things cannot be reduced to biology or social biology because they have a cognitive aspect. Even a kid knows that if he gets the joke, it's funny, but if he doesn't get it, then why is everybody laughing? Exactly. But that wouldn't be involved in the social biology because that does not have a cognitive aspect. For there to be a cognitive aspect, it matters, you know, do you get it? Or that is to say, do you think it's true? Does it make at some implicit level an argument or an observation about well, that all of you are in on a joke? It's a social phenomenon. Laughter is a social phenomenon. It's not just a phenomenon of things going on in the brain, as the neurobabblers say. Yeah, it's perfectly possible that somebody else notices something you haven't noticed, and when he brings it to your attention, you realize. Yeah. So man's capacity for humor suggests that maybe some things, some parts of life are just funny. And you could say that the programmatic aspect of science is to deny, ultimately, that there's anything that's really funny. And I would say, as Bergson and others pointed out, laughter is also a form of self-transcendence. You know, you get out of yourself. And uh, so many neurotics and psychotics, you know, they're so absorbed with themselves that they've lost the capacity to laugh. And, you know, talking about an authentic therapy, not this sort of reductive therapy, the ability to transcend yourself through laughter is a wonderfully humanizing phenomenon. You take yourself a little less seriously, but in the process, your soul soars a bit, you know, it, uh, it gets out of its own self-imprisonment. So, yeah, Peter had that, that self-conscious mortality, and he thought about a lot of dark things, human things. 
but always graced by laughter, always graced by a sense of, if not optimism, of hope. And, and I think he took great, great pleasure and great reflective insight out of this idea of the relational person. If you could unpack, as that subtitle is, what a person is. And that was the problem with totalitarian collectivism and democratic individualism. Democracies created a world where perhaps persons could flourish, but it had no idiom, the language, the categories to give an account of who persons were. And Peter thought this was a terrible debility for our liberal societies. Peter always said this to me, we have these experiences, we all have them, but we don't have the language to give an account of them. So we turn to these heresies, to these you know, half-baked accounts or partial truths that distort more than they illumine. So his mind was very wide-ranging. And of course, he was always interested in politics. He knew you know, who was in and who was out, who was up and who was down. He would prognosticate from time to time about you know, where the country was going or who was going to win an election. And he wasn't just a political theorist, you know, like academic political theorists who teach you know, five great books in the class all the time. Uh, he liked great books, but the books gave you access to the world, to the soul. He, ne he never believed in the cult of the great books in the sense that studying them was an end in itself. They were good to the extent that they gave us self-understanding. But he also got self-understanding from writing movie reviews. I mean, he didn't reduce Plato's Republic to no better than one of his favorite movies, but he thought that popular culture could get you thinking about human things in a way that was available to contemporaries. That's not my thing. I don't do that, but I enjoy it, and I'm glad he did it. I'm glad you do it, you know? <laughs> Thank you. You guys are bringing a great deal of thought and insight to this. You're not reducing high thought. You're understanding the low... I don't mean that this stuff is low, low, but you're understanding the low in light of the high. Most of the time in cultural studies, people understand the high in light of the low. And so it brings it down, but you're bringing it up. That's what good cultural studies should be. Yeah, I think that's right. Peter's idea of postmodernism, rightly understood, postmodern conservatism, which is aware both of the greatness and of the misery of modernity, of its successes as well as of its weaknesses, some of which are bred actually of success, require that we should have a gut check on the things we're willing to entertain or to believe. And the most obvious place for that would actually be pop culture, where storytellers dominate rather than ideologues, and whose interest is primarily the audience rather than an institution with its procedures. And for this double reason that it's a storyteller dealing with an audience, it's much easier to say we all get at some level that something we believe or we say is wrong or crazy or at least dubious, that it's gained currency among us, but it's not to be trusted. Because it doesn't comport with our experiences. You show a character or a situation that's supposed to work out in accordance with an abstract theory, and then it turns out it doesn't work out. And then you begin to wonder, is that reality talking to you? Is fiction, uh, is storytelling reminding you that there's a necessity to things? You shouldn't uh, let your reasoning run away with fantasies. You should always recur to experiences of human beings and wonder, does it really hold up? Is this actually going to work? Because if it's not, maybe there's a certain desire to believe in sanities for the sake of simplification. Yeah, you know, Eric Vogel was not an important figure for Peter, but Vogel's notion of ideology is the imposition of a second reality on the world we live and experience. 
I think we see it around us today, this great unraveling or this great awakening, as people call it, this cultural revolution, this mean-spirited and frankly quite stupid systematic assault on all the symbols of our civic and civilizational tradition. It's as if people start to live in a world that doesn't exist. And yet that's what ideology is. It's a kind of corruption of insight and soul and civic life when people start to think that this ideological surreality is the real world instead of the world known to us through personal experience. And I did more ideological critique than he did, but Peter understood the evil of ideology. He understood how people could become prisoners of abstractions. And I think he was always in his different way wanting to bring us back to the person, to that elementary truth. And yet as a Christian, and this was his Augustinianism, of course, you know, he, he didn't like the other kind of postmodernism where there's no truth, there's no reality, there's no soul that uh, we deconstruct, you know, we can't understand what an author says. But Peter also was a Christian, you know, he had less confidence than the classics did that we can know an author's intention, you know, or know a human being's deepest insights. Because Peter really believed that, along with St. Augustine, that in the end, only God really knew us. I mean, look, in a human way, we know ourselves. And so agency, purpose of this are terribly important, you know, and you might succumb to nihilism if you didn't have hope. But there's another sense in which we're opaque to ourselves, too. Peter, I think, found great hope in the fact that this self-conscious mortal we are, that we know that there's somebody who loves, there's a person who loves us and knows us and is our friend, our father and friend. And I think that was part of his science too, you know, that this opaqueness was not the final word. Or against the existentialists, you know, we do not live in chaos as opposed to a cosmos. We live in a world that we may not be at home, but there are intimations of home. And those intimations of home are the irreducible grandeur and misery to, we both cite Pascal, of the human person. The misery is the misery of man without God. It's also the misery of the self-conscious mortal. But the greatness is what a gift it is to be a relational person. What a gift it is to have the speech and reason to be a citizen. What a gift it is to use all the tools of reason and revelation to explore the truth of things. So uh, some darkness, but ultimately utter confidence. Peter was a personalist. For him, the human person in a way was the alpha and the omega. Not self-contained, but pointing through his relationality to God and man, to, you know, the deepest mysteries of the human condition. And just this language I'm using here, you know, Peter moved effortlessly back and forth from politics, philosophy, religion, popular culture. He was not a disciplined guy. I mean, politics and political philosophy have a centrality because man has a centrality. I mean, men and women, you know, uh, I'm not talking about gender exclusiveness. I have to explain that to my students now. You know, if you use traditional language, you're being gender exclusive. I said, don't read old books that way because no one was gender exclusive. But that's the tyranny of ideological cliches that uh, dominates our world. Yes, so the person. I wish Peter had had the discipline to write a book about the person because that would have been his great uh, theoretical contribution. He didn't do it, but I would say that the most deep reflection on the relational person in a theological, political, philosophical, cultural context is implicit in everything he wrote. 
Yeah, I think that's right. In a way, that's what it means to be a Christian, to be hopeful. The signs of that hope have to do with what makes us human in the first place, that we perceive our individuality, we are not satisfied with it, we try to raise it to a height that makes it worthwhile, and we, at the same time we experience our failures, the miseries of life in that attempt. And that drama makes being human worthwhile because there is indeed so much insight, even more than success. It's not so much about getting what you want as understanding what you want and why. What does it reveal about your character? There's a kind of joy in knowing what it means to be human. That's therefore some evidence for this hope. It's not all people might wish to be, which is why the world isn't a happy place after all. And mankind, we are not that happy after all. But there's hope. And that's also, in a way, a spur to action, to be curious about things and people enough to realize that you may be able to learn something, to discover something of importance, and therefore to guess at what that importance is. The restlessness of man, uh, Peter liked to say that we are wanderers and wanderers. We wander about the beings, but we also wander among them. That's to be experienced ultimately, as you said, as hopeful, as joyful, gladdening, the human experience, precisely because of the misery of the suffering of the mortality, also has this other side that is, if not triumphant, then it's in a way triumphant. It includes the possibility of triumph because there's something great and unique about being human. In his humorous way, after Walker Percy, Peter realized how funny it is to have so many scientists, as you were saying, trying to prove that we're not even human, which is something that only human beings could ever think of doing. That's have right. so many yeah. clever people try to identify with other beings that cannot and do not reciprocate that interest. He used to ask about Carl Sagan, the popular scientist from his TV show Cosmos. He wrote in several places, why is Carl Sagan so lonely? You know, instead of finding communion among other relational persons, among his neighbors, his loved ones, his colleagues, he was looking for salvation from superior aliens in other galaxies, you know, in the guise of a witty statement, kind of Percy-inspired from Lost in the Cosmos. That was a way Peter taught, you know. I think Percy said at first, we don't have to look throughout the Milky Way for something wondrous. It's right in front of us. The irreducible mystery, misery, glory of the human condition. And yeah, and I like you mentioned, wandering and wandering. Uh, that was a Peter phrase. What is this difference with Scruton? Scruton against these modernist efforts to tear us from our country and from loyalties, what he sometimes called humane national loyalty. He emphasized we have to defend home. And I'm a Scrutonian in that way. I want to defend the nation and I want to defend the little platoon. You know, this globalism that says we're citizens of the world. Again, it's another humanitarian abstraction. Nobody is a citizen of the world. Doesn't mean we don't have obligations to people outside our immediate circle or our country. Of course we do. But we do not come to sight as citizens of the world, despite what every fifth grader learns in school today. Again, the tyranny of ideological cliches, endlessly and dogmatically repeated. But Peter emphasized, in contrast to Scruton, our homelessness, you know, as opposed to me and Scruton and Menon to emphasize nationhood as the territorial home of self-government. And Peter bought that argument, too. But Peter wanted to say, ultimately, we're homeless in the world because along Augustinian lines, there's something in our souls that will never be satisfied in the human city. 
or simply with human happiness. Even C.S. Lewis, who didn't have much dark Augustinianism in his thought or soul, the very last article he wrote in 1963 before his death died on the same day as Huxley and John F. Kennedy, November 22, 1963. But uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called, We Have No Right to Happiness. And it was actually the old Christian argument. In a way, we want to be happy. We certainly want serenity and joy, but we're not going to find it through what Leo Strauss called the joyless quest for joy. If we spend all our time trying to be happy, we will be miserable. One of the great paradoxes, I think, shared by Christian and classical wisdom that if you start with a hedonistic calculus, you will end up miserable. And Peter knew that. It was in relationality. It was in giving. It was in gratitude. Peter had a profound intellectual and personal sense of gratitude. I would say modern atheistic humanism is all about the multiple reasons why we shouldn't be grateful. You know, we should conquer nature. We should get rid of all these unjust structures, you know. This is the worldview with a great unraveling. But Peter thought the first response of the human person was to be gratitude. A thinker I wrote on, he did, Bertrand de Juvenel, in his book Sovereignty, said, the wise man knows himself for debtor. In other words, the proper response of the human person is appreciation and gratitude for the givenness of things. And Peter was really, really good at articulating that classical Christian insight. And boy, once you have that insight and you articulate it, you're already happy because something overcomes you. One of Dostoevsky's characters says, we are all happy if we but know it. You know, this gift of life, for all its contentiousness, for all its mysteries, for all its darkness, is such a gift if we just step back and really allow ourselves to be grateful for the mystery of existence or the mystery of being, we've come a long way in overcoming that spiritual impoverishment that happens when you're a prisoner of the hedonistic calculus or what Sigmund Freud called the pleasure principle. He used to be a very important person, by the way, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> pleasure is part of life and we don't want a world without pleasure. But, you know, most of the goods in life are goods, first and foremost, and the pleasure comes second. And if we look for the pleasure first, we end up neither with the good nor the pleasure. Peter knew that. That's why these darker Christian thinkers like Pascal and Augustine were important for him. They kind of struck at this idea we find happiness through our own efforts, rather than stepping back and allowing, I would say, something like receptivity, to be receptive to the good. That was important for Peter. Yes, there is something about being human that is not altogether tied up with acquiring, with getting, or with having one's way. Putting to desire a sense of justice that we should get what we want, and if we do not get what we want, then perhaps we should burn down the world, is not just counterproductive, it's also in an important way insane. It's, as you say, not to the basic situation we find ourselves in, which is perhaps hard to realize nowadays, but it is there that we owe our being to other beings. We are relational beings from the beginning, from before we are even able to be aware of that. And we are indeed relational to the end. People do not, in fact, wish to die alone. Making sense of that is very difficult, and Peter emphasized how far people are now from gratitude, how far they are from any sense of home or belonging. Our individualism, our Pascalian loneliness, uh, restlessly looking for diversions, is uh, shockingly exaggerated. But as you like to say, the worse also brings out the better.
That is to say, we are more aware of how troubling our condition really is nowadays because there's less belonging. That brings out some bad things. Like you said, we live in a certain way under a tyranny of cliches, ideologically generated or at least organized. And that's precisely to hide from us what we all suspect which is that belonging isn't working out that well for us. That we're not sure. doing well enough. And we look for excuses for somebody to blame, for some way to deflect the matter so that we never have to be ashamed of ourselves, whereas that's, in fact, where we start. We are aware that we are inadequate, insufficient, but we don't wish to face that. But if we were to face that, we would also be able to discover by degrees, as you suggest, that we're happier than we know since it is not merely the getting of what you want, the ability to conceive, to imagine desires and satisfy them that makes us human, but also the awareness of what the conditions of being who we are are, what it means to live together with other people on whom we depend, and that we may begin to take confidence from that and be joyous about it. That too is a very important thing. As you say, partly the problem is that we do not have a language to talk about what we all suspect and sometimes fear is the case about our situation, what it means to be self-conscious mortals, not merely individual, but also relational beings. And partly that's because we're in a hurry. We want that one weird trick, that one solution, that one idea that fixes everything so that we have clarity of vision, so that we know that we're right to chase after what we want. Peter was very aware of what Solzhenitsyn meant when he said that he hears the howl of existentialism behind American consumerism. The happiness of material joy is not a fact of joy. It is actually a moral imperative. As you said, uh, Leo Strauss called it the joyless quest for joy. It's like going on a vacation with a plan that resembles more work or a military campaign than... Uh, and by the vacation. way, I can assure you, Americans are very good at that. I mean, a lot of people have fun on their vacations, but a lot of people come back. Tocqueville has a discussion of that. People go to, he says, you know, 48 states, and they come back exhausted, and uh, it's a sort of conspiracy against the spontaneity of life. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about living with others, relational beings. The founding conceit of modern political philosophy, the state of nature, is really quite remarkable that you have these human beings running around, affirming themselves, their self-preservation. With Locke, maybe their comfortable self-preservation. But in any case, they have no children. And human beings are, are not just these individuals running around the woods. We are always generated by a mother and a father. And so in the act of procreation, our relational being is immediately present, you know. But this illusion that the individual, not the person, is the fundamental actor in society. And then, of course, the accompanying idiom is rights. You know, claiming human rights against tyranny, Peter would always insist, is a very dignified and important thing. But the reduction of the entire human world to the struggle for rights is ultimately a perverse and nihilistic thing. And today, our rights are increasingly divorced from any ends and purposes that inform them. I live in Massachusetts, the liberal city of Somerville, which is next to Cambridge. You ever been to Cambridge? No, no. sir. Okay, Cambridge is where Harvard is. They have announced that I forget the official term for it, but it's any grouping. 
could be five men, three women, two dogs, you know, any group, no matter how many, is equal to a partnership of two. In other words, one more step in the erosion of marriage. I remember John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, when the court decided the Oprahfolk case legalizing in all 50 states same-sex marriage. Of course, God knows if he would dissent today, but he raised the question, why do you stop at two? You know, when you cut marriage off from procreation and any foundation in marriage or from the sexual binary and the mutual complementarity and accountability of men and women, I will shock your viewers. Quote a man who usually sounds very dignified. Immanuel Kant once defined marriage as a mutual contract for the manipulation of genitalia. Well, you can do that with six. You can do it with a tree. You can do it with a dog. I'm being a little polemical here. But Somerville has just proclaimed, they're still sticking with people, but two or 19, it's all the same. So marriage in a very short period of time has been denaturalized and it's been torn out of a civic context. But why is the political community interested in marriage? So we can have new citizens of the Republic. But if it's just people signing a contract to do whatever the hell they want to, that it's not related to the sexual binary, it's not related to moral obligation, one has no obligation to raise morally upright, serious, dignified children, then, you know, maybe uh, the libertarians are right. Maybe the state should get out of the business of marriage. If marriage is just 19 people on a commune carrying out polymorphous perversity, what interest is that to the political community? Why should we dignify that with the name marriage? So Peter really appreciated what happened when this individualism, he used to say, put Locke in the lockbox. It was his running joke. But he saw Locke and the state of nature, even if it's a better state of nature narrative than Hobbes, he saw it as corrosive because it began and ended with individuals. And any groups, the political community is a product of a state of nature. The family is subordinate to the individual rather than the other way around. He saw it as subversive of the trust and the ties and the bonds that are natural to human beings. You know, you might say with Peter as a political philosopher, everything stands or falls with the distinction between the relational person and the individual whose desires and rights have no natural connection and no natural limit. By the way, to any Locke scholars out there, Peter would privately concede Locke was a lot more sober than this, but that his individualist premises are very easily radicalized. And especially Locke sort of presupposed the moral capital from the past. He thought it would stay around for a while. And now as it's fraying, these individualist premises become more openly destructive. But he was very nuanced on all this. But, you know, Locke in the lockbox, that was a running joke going all the way back to uh, the Gore-Bush campaign in 2000. They were talking about putting Social Security in a lockbox so you couldn't spend it on programs. And Peter decided to put John Locke in the, the lockbox. Yeah. But he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, the underlying point, both psychologically and politically, is that the further you go down the individualist track, the harder it becomes to know that other people are also human beings the harder it becomes to trust them, to rely on them, because you no longer have a theoretical framework for saying that you know what these other people are thinking, what they're doing, what they're about. 
It's why gradually we dismantle all references to the soul, whether it's character or virtues or anything else. This was an architectonic of human being that allowed you to think about other human beings and human being as such, and so have some knowledge. But as these things are sacrificed in the name of individual liberty, it's just harder and harder to trust. It's harder and harder to be loyal. And these are not merely the intellectual vices of overeducated minorities. It's also increasingly a moral and political problem as people take out their unhappiness as political revenge. There was an American philosopher, late 19th century, first part of the 20th century, named Josiah Royce, who taught at Harvard. And his fundamental theme, he was a personalist too, kind of a mixture of Hegel and Christianity, but right-wing Hegelianism, not the Marxist stuff. Royce wrote a lot about loyalty. And he used to say, we have to be loyal to loyalty. Octavio Marcel, the Catholic Socratic, sometimes falsely called an existentialist, Marcel used to say, we need creative fidelity. You know, this idea of fidelity, this idea of loyalty, that loyalty is an end in itself, or relationality is an end in itself. These were not empty of substance. It's the relational attitude, the loyalty to one's children, to one's country, to one's civilization. They have plenty of moral content because these are goods. These are social entities, political entities, cultural and civilizational fields that are informed by goods and are based on human motives that are not arbitrary or not freely chosen. That's the great illusion of modern thought is that all these loyalties and goods are just freely chosen. Of course, we don't want to live in a society where all our choices are dictated to us by an omnicompetent state, but we want a liberal order that recognizes that there are better and worse choices and better and worse loyalties. Loyalty or reciprocity and fidelity and all these things, when they're lived, they're just constant reminders that individuality is a good thing in a social and relational context. But individualism is an utterly corrosive thing because it's based on the complete illusion that we're all self-determining gods. But, you know, as Tocqueville brilliantly points out at the beginning of volume two of Democracy in America, Peter was very sensitive to these passages. With this radical individualism, you're told to choose, but there's nothing to guide your choice. Instead of choosing and having this rich panorama of choice, you really end up with vertigo, a kind of dizzying. That's Solzhenitsyn's howl of existentialism. Instead of being liberated, you are closing on yourself in a kind of solipsistic prison. But why that didn't happen in liberal societies for a long time was, uh, for all intents and purposes, those old loyalties informed our self-determination. They weren't at war with each other. Yeah, it's harder now to see, and perhaps nowadays it's suffering, misery, that points out to people that there are problems with choice because you don't know how or what or why to choose. And it's only in a way through failures that people realize that much of what guides choice is natural and inborn and not itself chosen, as family is not chosen, as love is not entirely chosen, or indeed, in a way, even friendship. Nature, in a way, is a higher standard than individual choice, since that's what we check against. Should I be doing this? Is this doing right by myself and others? That points to a natural standard, since none of these things can be successfully politicized. 
despite all the attempts, getting people to fall in love or to fail to fall in love on political command has proven to be very difficult. To say nothing of being born or dying on command. These are not things that are amenable to ideology. Yeah, the Christian church always recognized that there was a proper element of consent in marriage. It wasn't like India where, you know, everyone was told who to marry whom. It was recognized that there's dignity in consent, but it wasn't an open-ended consent. It was still a covenant. It was still a contract. It was still sacramental commitment. But, you know, you have to want to marry this person and have some affection for them. Now, today, we go to the other extreme, and everything is reduced to consent and no other considerations, and that means marriages are often short-lived because they're not covenants to be endured, or to endure. To be endured sounds like you're putting up with a lot of awful stuff, but you're entering in a permanent partnership where virtue and love and affection and sacrifice are necessities, but wonderful necessities, or you're entering into a contract that can be broken when it becomes convenient to do so. So how, it's really a mystery, I think, how did the Christian West allow the older notions of loyalty, fidelity, reciprocity, relationality to be overthrown and replaced by an imperial and totalitarian notion of consent? Consent sounds very liberal, but consent can be very totalitarian because it wants to remake every institution. The army is hierarchical, but you know, this person is transgendered, so the army has to reinvent himself to accommodate their felt needs. Or the Catholic Church has a certain understanding of priesthood, but so-and-so is a woman who wants to be a priest, therefore the institution has to change to accommodate individual rights or you know, the felt needs of the individual. And that's what's happened. We used to have authoritative institutions the army, the churches, the universities, but that's all gone. And individual rights sort of takes precedent over everything. So the institutions cease to be institutions in any meaningful way. It'll only be a matter of five or 10 years when some court in Western European United States tells the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church that they have to allow women priests in the name of individual rights. Yeah, this is indeed a very dangerous matter, and it's true that its willfulness is tyrannical and nakedly tyrannical, since it is always an imposition of will that has the character of a novelty on things that everybody was already used to and found very tolerable. And unless we can tell ourselves the lie that life up until last year or five years ago was simply miserable, we would have to ask ourselves, why are we so willing to tyrannize over everything we've inherited? I think that at the same time, you can see this tyrannical will in another way from the opposite point of view. Everyone who believes in consent, nevertheless, secretly has an experience somewhere of having consented to something that turned out to be bad and miserable. And so the consented is not the same as the good. But what do you do with that? Well, we lie about it or we hide it as a kind of shameful secret in a situation where shame is the only thing to be ashamed of. The correlative of, as you put it, the tyrannical will that says it is only forbidden to forbid. That's exactly tyranny. When you think about that remark of the Swazon Uitar in Paris in May 68, it's juvenile and it's silly, but it's also kind of demonic. The idea that every limit on our will, and this is a deep problem in modern philosophy and modern politics, the radical confusion of limits with tyranny and legitimate authority with domination. Foucault comes to mind on this. 
if we confuse legitimate authority with oppressive domination, we have an invitation to a new totalitarianism where the name of freeing people from institutions that they have tacitly consented to for millennia, we are going to free them. But in the process, we're going to destroy what you might call the social context of individuality or human liberty. Peter was very, very, that was a shared concern of Peter and mine, just how tyrannical the idea of consent had become. You know, consent is a precious political principle. We don't want a government governing us against our consent. There's a word for that, despotism. Tocqueville actually has a very powerful passage in volume one of Democracy in America where he says, the problem is in democracy, consent goes from becoming a political principle where it's salutary to becoming a metapolitical principle. So consent has to be applied to every aspect of life. You know, when the French National Assembly was debating a very minor liberalization of marriage laws to allow divorce in some circumstances, Louis de Bonald, who was a reactionary, he was the buddy of Joseph de Mestre, but he wrote a little essay on divorce, and he says, once you introduce the principle that marriage can be annulled, not, you know, in extreme cases, but because of consent, Then he says, you've destroyed the covenantal tie at the service of, perhaps Bonald wanted a too traditional society where some people were trapped. But on the other hand, he sort of saw the logic. It was kind of an all or nothing logic. And yet, you know, the vast majority of people, I think today really believe things are good because people consent to it. Yeah, so that's the dialectic of consent, and it is indeed very dangerous. It is the flip side of what you said earlier, that people in our times very loudly proclaim that any problem we have will solve by more democracy. The other way of looking at that is to say that we'll identify the good with that to which we have consented, and every time that makes us miserable, unhappy, or creates terrible injustice, we blame something else that is not as yet an object of consent for the problem, however implausibly, and then destroy that too in the name of having more consent. The way the philosopher would speak about this is that consent is not the only criterion. Wisdom is also important. Yeah, yeah. That's why my title of my 2011 book, The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order, my point was a liberal order can only be humanly choice-worthy, morally serious, and free if it limits its own principles. You know, when consent or choice, or now we would say a term for philosophy that has been deeply corrupted, autonomy, when that drives everything, then all the goods, all the institutions that inform and elevate liberty become distorted. And that means a liberal order is not going to survive if it starts warring on what Michael Polanyi called the continuity of civilization. If we undermine the churches, if the universities become homes of tyrannical thought control, imposing ideological racist anti-racism, then we've destroyed institutions that are crucial to responsible individuality. Somebody once said, you know, in human life, the foremost important words are up to a point. Liberalism is good up to a point. Good until it starts destroying its own preconditions. So I don't see myself as in any way an enemy of the liberal order. I think of myself as a critic of the self-destruction of the liberal order. You know, without conservatism, 
liberalism self-destructs. And when I say conservatism, I really mean those broader moral foundations, conservative foundations, not be based only or exclusively on consent. Truth would be the truth, regardless of whether we consent to it. So in the end, if liberty and truth are radically torn apart, then liberty over time becomes indifferent to truth. And then over time, activists and ideologues openly war on truth, since the denial of truth is the precondition of consent. So we end up with out-and-out nihilism. Now, whether or not that has to be, or whether or not there's a different road that liberalism could take is a really interesting and open question. But still, it's the only game in town, so we better try to save it from itself before we end up with something really monstrous. This is what we're dealing with now. In fact, indeed, over the last couple of hundred years, we've also realized not just the weaknesses of liberalism whenever it turns revolutionary, but also the alternatives, which are just as atrocious. In fact, if successful, more atrocious. And so, you know, there's a real dark side to our political world. It's not merely the misunderstanding of what makes us human beings, the ignorance of our relational being or the oblivion of the past. It's also that it leads to catastrophic wars and collapses and all the misery of this world. These things are very real, if much less experienced in America than in other parts of the world. But that too, the awareness of those dangers is a source of seriousness. What Peter meant when he said that things are always getting better and worse, if in different ways, included the fact that sometimes it's getting things worse that makes people wiser, more serious, more aware of necessity more willing to accept limits and to accept ugly truths. And that's the lesson we should have learned from totalitarianism, except... Except we didn't deal with it. It was somebody else. We passed on no lessons to the younger generations, and now we have a generation of young people, my students, who at a minimum think communism is good in theory and not so bad in practice. How did we live through the hell of the 20th century and not pass on that experience, what Chantal Dossol called the untold lessons of the 20th century? It's startling that young people know nothing about one of the gravest threats to human liberty and dignity of human history. It's an example of irresponsibility on the part of the entire governing class and on the part of conservatives who cared more about the stock market than our cultural heritage. That's true. That's all true. I mean, you can look at the world now. In China, a race has been sent to concentration camps, the Muslim Uyghurs in the extreme west of China, and people don't as much as blink an eye as though this has not happened before, even though it's really the perfect reminder of the combination of Nazism and communism. And we will have to deal in some ways with the fact that oblivion has gotten to this point and there's no hiding become aware of what our natural situation is and who we are as human beings is also to see in a certain way what an insane, insane situation we are in institutionally and for that reason educationally. It really is the case that people pretend that reality is not the thing that's happening. That will not be easily dealt with, but first of all, of course, the recovery of that reality and of the sure knowledge that there is a difference between these fantasies and what the human situation really is, is of great importance. And perhaps one of the greatest gifts of Peter was that he had a wit and charm in his presentation of the madness of modernity and a genuine appreciation for the good parts of modernity. We are usually tempted to be grimmer, gloomier, in a way more serious, but in a way more despondent. You know, Solzhenitsyn says at the end of his Harvard address, we can't go back. 
we have no place to go but up. In other words, we've got to work through these dislocations and these pathologies of modernity. I reject yes. them. Nietzsche had a wonderful saying. I don't remember Peter quoting it, but I like to quote it. Whisper to the conservative, only a crab can crawl backwards. I believe it's from the Twilight of the Idols. You know, uh, we can't go back, but we can draw on the wisdom of the past to move through the cultural and spiritual and political dislocations of our time. And there are goods associated with the modern world, the curing of diseases, greater opportunities for those who were left out of the polis. These are good things. Even the conquest of nature, you know, if it makes possible a diminution of real poverty. Christians shouldn't care about equality too much. Who the heck cares if some people have more? But we should care about some people not having enough to eat or not having the opportunity to develop their gifts as human beings. You know, the market economy and uh, the modern technological scientific revolution have given us the ability to address the social question. Totalitarianism turned out to be a terrible way to address it. All you got was famines. You know, more people died in communist countries from famines than died in the prisons and concentration camps. They couldn't even produce food that primitive societies could produce. That wasn't the way forward, but the market economy under law with the proper moral accompaniments, with the proper moral culture, with the self-government of the soul, it can be a marvel. But even capitalism in the last generation has morphed into something else, you know, with finance capitalism. You know, the old entrepreneurs and businessmen who really cared about their country seem to be gone. Look at all these capitalists who are funding the revolution and just don't really seem to care that they promote a nihilist moral and social revolution, maybe as a way of not getting picked on by the activists, but it's shameful. If the capitalist economic order depends on a certain moral framework, well, they're doing their damnness to kill it. So it's uh, these are difficult times, but... Peter's wisdom is something we can draw on to think about questions that are not just contemporaneous and very pressing, but are enduring. I think that was Peter's gift. He had the gift for addressing what's before us in a way that dealt with eternal verities or deep and abiding truths. And that's what it's all about. And by the way, I'm going to add one more thing about Peter. If the world were just, if our universities were not dominated by unrepentant ideologues and fools, Peter would have had a chair at a major university. He loved Barry. They treated him well. He had generations of students who learned from him. But Peter, his work, the extent of it, the thought that informed it, the range of it, Peter was one of the great thinkers of the last two generations. And, you know, he had a job at Berry College, a very good Southern liberal arts college. But I can tell you how many ideologues and time servers and fools and cretins have major positions at Ivy League institutions and big gun liberal arts colleges who, you know, have and will never produce anything of the quality and insight. Peter was a philosopher. He wasn't just a scholar. You know, he actually gave us some access to truth. But these people don't believe in truth. So. But Peter would say, Mahoney, stop whining. I had a good career. I uh, had my audience and I became a public intellectual. And he never whined. I'm whining for him now that he's gone because there's an injustice there. And I think it ought to be pointed out. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's more that we get of understanding than of justice in this world. It's part of our condition. But it is good to remember Indeed, it's partly the ignominy of the situation that showed the true nobility of Peter. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, thank you very much for joining me for this conversation, Mr. Mahoney. It's an ongoing series that reveals so much about Peter's friends, about his ideas, about his public activity, as well as what the connection is between these things and being a teacher of political philosophy in a small liberal arts school and how all these things come together. Is my portrait of Peter complementary to the other accounts, congruent with what Mark and Paul and the others have said? These are all my yeah. friends, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah, largely, people seem to have thought of Peter in very, very similar ways. People have sometimes different emphases and, of course, certain different disagreements. But presumably because Peter was so much in writing, in conferences and everywhere else, people got a very good glimpse of him. There are these virtues of Aristotle's ethics that people don't think much about, like speaking in a forthright manner, wit as a virtue and all of these things that he embodied and generosity, of course. And so it seems like we all, from very different angles and different experiences and different capacities, knew the same man. Uh, I suppose that's why it is easier to become friends as friends of Peter Lawler. Yeah, and he had a gift for friendship. We were really Peter's friends, and we were his interlocutors, which was another mode of approaching friendship with Peter. But we also saw the human being, the fellow who loved to laugh and tell stories and hang out at conferences. And he loved, he was very good. I, I have a feeling there's a story with uh, you and him. He was very good at mentoring and encouraging people he saw promise in. And in that sense, his teaching went far beyond Berry College, but to many, 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 many people over the last uh, couple of generations. So that's something we honor Peter for. Yes, indeed. I owe my career to Peter since he introduced me into postmodern conservative. And I think even aside from that personal gratitude, it is simply the truth that all the people involved in this series can attest to, and not merely in their own cases. He understood that America needs certain shifts, and he worked very hard, if in a joyous manner, to encourage people's friendships and helping and working together so that their shared ideas would not lead them to feel impotent, but instead to get things done and get ahead with their lives and find out for sure whether their ideas are true or not by testing them practically. That's good for all of us, but it's good for America, too, that intellectual friendship is also a practical work of education or of the refining and enlarging of the public views or all of these other related but distinct matters. And that's why at the foundation, and especially in our Postmodern Conservative series, we try to carry on that work to introduce our audience to friendship, which is partly about writing books and publications, partly about having conversations, and partly about telling people about what things they might discover and what things they might do. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking, sir, and we should do this again soon sometime. Let's keep in touch. I love to talk about these things, as you probably guessed, so I'll, I'd be happy to do it again on any subject of mutual interest. So, all right, thank you. Right. I really, really enjoyed it. All the best, sir. Bye-bye.